you know, when you lose your job, you have to really guard against your anger because there's a bitterness and there's an anger that will wants to blame and wants to hold people accountable. And what Hubie said is you have to be really careful not to generalize that to the, to the profession of coaching. Uh, and he said, because there's a lot of great people that have gotten out of coaching because they let their anger, you know, go towards the game of basketball, you know, or toward, toward the profession itself. And that was incredibly great advice. <laughs> you know, I can, I can relate with that completely. Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Coach Nate Sanders into the podcast. Nate is a high school basketball coach in Iowa, as well as the co-host of the Coaching Culture Podcast with J.P. Nurban, who was our guest on Episode 7 of the podcast. Nate works with J.P. at Thrive on Challenge to provide mentorship and support to coaches from across sports and levels. In our conversation today, we dive into Nate's story of losing his job, going from a head coach to an assistant, improving practice design, and creating an environment of high standards and positive relationships. If you're already on my email list, check your email inbox for the weekly email and a link to download the notes from this episode. If you're not on my email list and you'd like to get a copy of the notes from this episode, go to coachesclubpod.com, drop your email in the form, and you can download the notes from this episode or any episode of the podcast. And one final thing before we hop in. We're in the second round of the book clubs on the Coach's Guide to Teaching currently, but you can already sign up for round three. One note about the next round of book clubs. It's going to cost $25. This is primarily to ensure that those who sign up are committed to the book club, which creates a better experience for everyone. But if you aren't satisfied with the value that you've received after the first two weeks of the book club, I'll refund your money. You can get a sneak peek into the book clubs and bonus episodes two and three, which also include a guest appearance and Q&A with Doug Lamov. When I surveyed the participants of the first round of book clubs about how valuable they found it, the average response was a four and a half out of five. If you want to learn more or sign up for the next round, go to cgtbookclubs.com or click the link in the show details. Now to my conversation with Coach Nate Sanderson. Enjoy the episode. All right, coaches, really excited to welcome Coach Nate Sanderson to the podcast today. Uh, Coach, would love to just start here with you. Uh, I know this past season, um, you actually had a situation where you – lost your head coaching job at, at a rather large high school. And so I would just love if maybe you could um, give a little context about that situation and then just talk about the personal challenges that you kind of experienced through that situation and how you handled them. Well, we're getting right into the therapy, right? From the first question here. That's, uh, that's great. Well, Luke, I'm glad uh, to be with you here today. And and uh, yeah, I had an interesting experience. Uh, two years ago, I was coaching at one of the largest high schools in the state of Iowa. And uh, just to give some context kind of to some of the challenges we faced that year, um, you know, when I started at that school in year one, we had a massive amount of attrition when I took the job. So I remember the first day we had the uh, meeting with the players, there's 47 players that were at the meeting. By the time we had our first day of practice, there was 32 left. So we lost about a third of the program before we even did, you know, a formal practice. 
And uh, as part of that, we lost a couple of Division One athletes. Um, a Division One player went to play with a U team. We have Division One volleyball player broke her foot in volleyball, so she was out for the year. Another one wanted just to play volleyball, and so in that first year we were three and nineteen, and really just starting from scratch. Um, and so when we went into year two, we made a lot of progress. Uh, year two we were five hundred. We finished the year eleven and eleven. Uh, won five in a row at the end of the year before we lost the eventual state champion in the regional playoffs and beat a couple of ranked teams were really competitive in a lot of nights, you know, a lot of games. So there was a lot of, I think, momentum and feeling like, boy, if this trajectory continues, you know, we're going to get something established here. So going into year three, you know, one of the things that was emphasized to us, and this wasn't unique to girls basketball, it was a philosophy of the athletic department is they, they really wanted to emphasize numbers, you know, keeping kids out and getting kids out. And so we worked really hard to address some of the attrition issues, you know, that had been present in the program, certainly in my first couple of years and even before that. And what that meant going into year three is that we had we had more players out, but we didn't have more varsity jerseys. We didn't have more starters. We didn't have a longer rotation. And so kind of coupled with that, we really worked to try to lay some groundwork um, that this meant there was going to be more competition. You know, there was going to be more competition for spots and for jerseys and for playing time and tried to lay some groundwork, you know, and sort of preclude the fact that that could mean that there may be seniors that don't make varsity or there could be upperclassmen that played last year that may be pushed by an underclassman and we're going to play the better player. You know, we're going to play the player that makes our team the best on the court. And so everybody seemed to be on board with that in the off season. And we get into our first week of practice and, had an amazing first week of practice. And, uh, and then for the next probably four to six weeks, we just couldn't shoot the ball. Like, you know, we, we played in our first seven games. I think we shot around 30 or 31% from the field. Um, and so going into break, we were, I think two and five or two and six, instead of being five and two, which is if we'd have shot 33 or 34%, you know, we lost a couple of games in overtime. Uh, we're competitive in a couple more. We, we just, we just couldn't make enough shots. Everything else we were doing was better. If you looked inside the analytics, giving up fewer points or getting to the line more, turning it over less, forcing more turnovers, you know, down the line, we just couldn't put the ball in the basket. And so uh, players started to get disgruntled for a variety of reasons. I mean, one being that we just weren't winning as much as everyone expected, myself included. Um, and again, due to the fact that we were really emphasizing competition for spots, there were upperclassmen that played, you know, in the rotation, maybe six to eight minutes a game the year before that got beat out by juniors or by sophomores. And so that did not sit well. Um, and particularly in a program where, um, you know, seniors had been entitled to varsity shirts and be in the rotation until somebody's clearly better and that sort of thing. And so, you know, we had a stretch there where, you know, we were getting anonymous letters in the mail. We were having parent meetings where, you know, the parents are, building a case with the athletic director that the only reason that their daughter's not playing is because I have a personal vendetta against her. Um, we were, you know, parents were calling the administration and complaining about seniors not getting a chance and our offense and the way we were practicing and you can go down the line. And so at any rate, as we got into January, um, a lot of those things coalesced. And I think behind the scenes, there was a bit of a coordinated effort to really put some pressure on the administration to make a decision about me staying with the program. And uh, so I walked into a meeting in mid-January and, uh, you know, the AD just shared with me that there were players 
They were concerned we're going to transfer. There were parents that were saying they didn't want to walk on senior night or come to the banquet if I was going to be there. And so we kind of decided that, you know, if that's where the program is at and that's where the critical mass is, then it's probably not worth it for me to try to finish the season because they thought it would only get worse from there and they might have been right. And so agreed to step down uh, for personal reasons at that point. And that was uh, that was the end of my tenure there. Yeah, that's that's brutal, but I don't think it's unfortunately, I don't think it's uncommon for coaches to experience. Will you just talk about what that was like for you personally, especially going through that, but then also after that? I, I just can imagine that that would be a really, really difficult thing to handle. Yeah, you know, going through the process, I think in December and January of kind of just the increase in criticism and you can feel the the daggers, you know, people staring at you, you're losing your team a little bit where you can tell you they're not listening the way they were, that they're not as bought in as what they may have been, you know, the year before. It's tough, you know. Um, I mean, we had a, a meeting where, um, you know, our AD kind of shared some of the complaints that she was hearing from players, but never put any names on it. So you walk into practice, you know, you don't know who's going to the AD and complaining about the offense or the mental health days or the culture or the coach's approach or whatever it might be. So that was hard and kind of a weird situation, especially for, you know, our approach as a staff, which is to really emphasize relationships and communication with kids. And, you know, in a lot of ways that was undermined in year three. Um, and, you know, one of the things I think is I've, I've you know, being in a, a professional mentorship program and a mentor for a lot of coaches at the high school and college level through Thrive on Challenge, I feel total relief, you know, that all that stress and all that anxiety and all that pressure and all that criticism like dissolves away almost instantly. And for me walking out of that meeting, I felt total relief. Uh, it just, it was like, it's over, you know? And so get in your car, you drive home never to be seen again. And, and, you know, there's challenges obviously going through that and trying to process that in the aftermath um, you know, another thing that Hubie had shared with Will that he had, had relayed to me was, you know, when you lose your job, you have to really guard against your anger because there's a bitterness and there's an anger that will wants to blame and wants to hold people accountable. And what Hubie said is you have to be really careful not to generalize that to the to the profession of coaching. Uh, and he said, because there's a lot of great people that have gotten out of coaching because they let their anger, you know, go towards the game of basketball, you know, or toward, toward the profession itself. And that was incredibly great advice. <laughs> you know, I could, I can relate with that completely. So I remember the Friday night, you know, after that happened, the first night that I you know, wasn't on a sideline for 20 years and a Friday night in January and we're at home and, you know, I've got a five-year-old at the time and a two-year-old and my daughter, my five-year-old couldn't understand why we weren't at a basketball game. And, you know, I'm trying to explain that I, I don't coach there anymore. And, and she, you know, loved those girls and loved those kids on our team. And so she went into the, you know, her tent in the living room and curled under a blanket and starts, you know, crying in this ball. And you're like, boy, that's, that's when it really hurts. You know, I mean, there's, there's part of you as a coach that obviously misses the game, misses the challenge, misses your staff, but boy, that, that hits a little bit differently when, you know, when your five-year-old misses her best friend's because we're not able to go to a game that night. Wow. Yeah, that's heavy. That's heavy stuff. And actually, right as you said it, I was just 
I was going to ask you about just handling the bitterness and anger that I think most people would feel in that situation. So I, I appreciate you sharing that because yeah, I think that's the reality of what a lot of coaches probably experience in a similar situation. You're bitter, you're angry. It doesn't feel fair. Um, because like you talked about, it's like you were there to serve these kids. You were there to help them, to coach them. Um, and then for that situation to happen, that's, that's just hard to deal with. So I applaud you for being willing to uh, embrace the suck of it and, and try to walk through it. Uh, kind of shifting a little bit, but pulling on that, that same thread. So uh, to give people a little context, you, context, you went from that job then to kind of assisting with another high school program. So I'd love for you just to share a little bit about that and, and what maybe have been a couple of the important things that you've learned about yourself as a coach going from the head coach back to an assistant role. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, And I'll kind of continue the story a little bit. So the spring, you know, the following spring, we had some opportunities to interview from some for some positions and a couple of schools reached out. And um, I think we had some opportunities where we could have got into head coaching right away, but it would have required our family to relocate. And my wife makes all the money, you know, she has a great job, all of our insurance is through her job. And so relocating across the state for a, you know, a job that pays $6,000 a year, didn't seem like the wisest thing to do in the middle of a global pandemic. And so, um, you know, my, my buddy that I started coaching with here this past season, where I was a volunteer assistant is somebody I had coached against for about 10 years before that, uh, in the same league and their school is about 35 minutes from our house. And actually after I stepped down from my position, I kind of sort of snuck in the back door and was helping him out a little bit with some scouting film and they ended up making a deep postseason run. So I was doing their scout as they went to the state tournament, eventually won a state championship. And after that season, we had talked and I said, you know, if I don't find anything else, would you care if I just kind of came and hung out again next year, you know, and he was all for it. And the rest of the staff was real excited about that. And so one of the things that that challenged me with is trying to understand what is it about coaching um, that brings out my best self? You know, there's a lot of responsibilities that go with being a head coach, a lot of administrative responsibilities. You've got the game prep, you've got the practice plan, you've got the interaction with kids. Like, And some coaches really enjoy different aspects of that and tolerate others. And so for me, you know, going through the interview process in a couple of different places, I remember at one particular school where, you know, we had kind of done the whole song and dance and it ended with a tour of the school with the superintendent's family, including his daughter, who was going to be the leading returning scorer on the team. And when I saw the the itinerary for the day, I reached out to him and I said, hey, would you mind if I just sat down with your daughter at some point? I just kind of like to pick her brain a little bit about, you know, where she sees the program and maybe what she'd like to see moving forward and, and some of that kind of thing. And so at the end of the day, we ended up at the superintendent's house and he said, you know, here's a chance for you to, to just kind of pick her brain a little bit, ask her whatever you want. And so he kind of, he had a basketball court at his house and he kind of left us alone. And so she was kind of shooting and I was just rebounding. We were talking and, you know, probably spent about 20 minutes or so just talking about the program and that sort of thing. And, and walking away from that, I remember on the drive home, just thinking, that's what I miss the most. I miss talking to kids. You know, I love basketball. I love the X's and O's. I really like the game planning. I love the idea of innovating and practice. But at the end of the day, I don't need those responsibilities if I have an opportunity to interact with kids. And so being a varsity assistant gave me that opportunity. 
to you know build some of those individual relationships with kids. And so it was you know a learning process. Um, Coach Wheatley and his assistant had been together for 12 or 14 years before I you know walked through the door. So I'm trying to kind of learn the lay of the land. You know, they did things differently than what what we had done for a number of years. But by the end of the season, I mean he gave me a tremendous amount of latitude, trust me completely, <laughs> you know, so I was probably planning half of our practices. I was doing weekly film sessions. We were doing mental health days every week. Uh, I was doing substitutions during games and uh, doing some one-on-ones with players after games and during the week and that sort of thing. So a lot of the things that I really loved, I, I was still able to do as an assistant coach. And it was a really gratifying experience for all of us, I think. That's awesome. And such so important to have that clarity. What is what is actually the reason that I love this? Why why am I doing it? What's the part of this job that kind of fuels your soul? Uh, so I, I like that. Powerful that you were able to identify that. Shifting a little bit, and you just kind of mentioned it briefly. I'd love to pick your brain a little bit on practice design. And here's my question: two sides to it. First, what are coaches often getting wrong when it comes to practice design? And two, on the other side of that, how can we design practices that help our players get better faster and transfer to the games? Yeah, so this has been kind of a a passion of mine over the years, probably over the last seven or eight years, where I've completely changed uh, my philosophy and approach to planning practice. And I haven't seen enough of other people's practices to say, here's what the majority of people are doing wrong, but I can tell you what I think I was doing wrong for the first 10 to 12 years of my career. You know, I started out with very little playing experience. I mean, as a player, I played through the C team at Southeast junior high in Iowa city, Iowa, and that, that was the end of my (laughs) formal basketball career. So, you know, I didn't really have a lot of experience to look back on in any way. And so when I started out as originally as an assistant coach, I just did what the head coach did because I didn't know anything differently. So a lot of traditional drills, a lot of traditional um, skill development, unopposed skill development, those sorts of things, five on O when you're learning plays and offense. And, and so that's what I did for a lot of my you know first half of my career because that's what I knew. Um, and so I kind of faced a bit of a um, existential crisis about seven years ago when about three different things sort of converged at the same time that really made me start thinking differently. One was uh, we had a a meeting. I remember in 2014, we weren't practicing very well. And I remember bringing my captains in and just asking them like, what's going on? You know, like it's middle of January. And I just thought maybe it's the dog days, you know, and they said, well, coach, uh, nobody's really having any fun. And that was news to me because I was having a great time. You know, I loved scouting inbound plays and putting in a new wrinkle to a set and spending that time, you know, doing that stuff in practice, but our players weren't enjoying it at all, you know? And so that's one of the things that we started making time for fun in practice. And originally that just started with more fun Wednesdays, the last 25 minutes of practice on Wednesday our sole purpose was to have fun. And so whether that meant, you know, kickball or wiffle ball or musical chairs while you're dribbling, or we had a player that drove a Volkswagen bug, we tried to fit the whole team in our car, you know, just whatever it might be to have fun. We we wanted to make sure that we valued that. Well, at the same time, this was when I was at, at Springville, we had invested about five or six years in building this 
offseason shooting program where and we called it sniper school. And I thought at the time it made a lot of sense where, you know, Luke, you might start on the baseline at four feet. You'd shoot 10 shots. If you made six out of 10, you got to go to eight feet. You'd shoot 10 shots if you make six out of 10. So it was kind of this way where they had to earn their range, so to speak. And we got a lot of data for where a player's 60% range might be on the court in unopposed shooting. But as we kept doing this with basically seventh through 12th graders, and we charted probably 125,000 shots over the course of a number of years, is it didn't correlate to better shooting in games. And I remember, you know, we had a, a senior that had done it for five years, from eighth grade to 12th grade. And we thought she's shooting 55% from three in sniper school. And we thought we're finally going to have somebody who can stretch the floor, you know, give us some space. And she went out and shot 31% from three on the year. And I thought at the time, well, she's an aberration, right? It's because she's not that athletic and she can't get her shot off that quickly. So the next year we had another senior, 54% from three in sniper school. And she shot 13% from the three-point line, you know, during gameplay. And so at the same time, I was reading Brian McCormick's book, um, The 21st Century Basketball Practice, and just started to realize that one of the reasons this wasn't transferring, we were getting really good at sniper school, but not great at shooting in games, you know. And so what we lacked was variability and perception and decision-making and randomness. And, and so we really started to undo a lot of our traditional training methods um, and start thinking differently about how we learn, you know, how we develop skill. And then of course, how we can create situations and an environment in practice to be able to do that better. Yeah, it's really good. I, I appreciate you sharing. Yeah. Your journey through that to pull on the thread a little bit more. So, you know, shooting, that's the perfect example. So many coaches, I think in basketball, it's easy it's kind of that skill where like maybe there's some value in some blocked repetitive shooting practice. I think there is, but like you said, if that's all we're doing, it's just not going to transfer. So I would love to just know, maybe just like one example, how did you, how did you take something like shooting and then put it in a game context where kids could still get lots of reps, maybe in practice shooting, but they were more game like reps where they actually had to make a decision and there was defense and all of those factors. Yeah, I think we, we've done that in a couple of different ways. And, you know, where I would start is you have to understand the purpose of what you're doing. I think there is value in block shooting practice. If I, you know, Luke, you're playing for me. And I think, especially the postseason. I want you to see the ball go in the basket as much as possible. I want to groove that shot. I want you feeling good about your jump shot. I might make practice less challenging because I'm trying to trick your brain into thinking you're a really good shooter <laughs> as we go into regional play. But I, I'm understanding that I'm making our drills less game-like for a reason. Um, you know, when you think about shooting in a game, obviously there's a lot of things that don't happen um, in block practice that happen in a game or unopposed shooting that happen in a game. You know, one is, is defensive pressure, obviously that accelerates your shot. It closes your space. It may impact your vision. Um, we talk a lot about shooting is a decision, you know, in a block shooting drill, every time I catch it, I'm going to shoot it. The decision has already been made by the coach, but in real life, I'm reading a closeout. I'm reading space. I'm trying to decide if this is a good shot for me. Am I balanced? Uh, what's time and situation. So there's a lot of factors, you know, there's a lot of things in the environment that we have to perceive and process to make a decision. So 
a couple of ways that we've incorporated that into practice. One, um, especially in the off season, we'll play a game called decision shooting. And it's really, really simple. Uh, if you can imagine, Luke, you starting under the basket as the defender with the basketball, and I'm going to be in the slot and JP Nurbin's going to be in the corner as our designated shooter in the corner. You're going to pass the ball to either me or to JP, and you're going to close out to a shooter as hard as you can. So if you throw it to me in the slot, my default reaction is, and this is just part of the way we play on an inside out pass. I want to shoot that. That's the easiest shot that we can get. So I'm loaded and ready default. I'm going to shoot it unless I can't because you're up in my face. And if you're up in my face, JP Nervin better be going crazy in the corner calling for the basketball. And I'm going to make the one more and you're going to chase that pass to try to close his window quickly. So we just add a little bit of decision to the shooting process. And then we play it out competitively. If JP makes the shot, he gets a point and I get a point for making a good decision. If he misses and you get the rebound, you get two points. So it's like there's two points available every time that we do that, uh, a repetition. Um, and if you miss it or if JP misses it and I get the rebound, then we're playing two on one with no dribble to score until we get to a conclusion, either we score or you get possession of the ball. So, and then the last shooter becomes the defender, you know, you go out and become a shooter. So, you know, another thing that we think a lot about is time on task. How much are our players actually doing things in practice? How many repetitions are they actually getting? I'll never forget the first time that we um, videotape one of our practices uh, and we were actually working on a product for Breakthrough Basketball. So we did a, a 90 minute practice and I went back and looked at it and I was talking for 45 minutes of the 90 minutes. I never would have imagined that, right? Our players are only on task for 45 minutes at best. And so, you know, that was a real eye opener for me. And so for a lot of coaches that I, I work with and I mentor, if I have an opportunity to watch their practice, I'm picking a kid and I'm watching and I'm counting or use a stopwatch, whatever it might be to measure how much time are they actually doing things because we believe we get better by doing. So can I give you one more example here? Um, another thing I think that that lacks a lot of the drills that I used to do is just the, the value of perception. So I'll give you another basketball example. When we play in zone offense, a lot of times when we are next to the ball in the perimeter, our spacing is determined by the two closest defenders. So we'll tell our kids, you know, I'm at the top of the key against a two, three zone. Luke is on the wing. Where should I go, coach? Well, you should go in a place where you're dangerous to the zone and forming a triangle equidistant between the two players that could guard you because ultimately we want to engage two players and then play with a small advantage from there. So that changes, right? Depending on whether you're playing against a one, two, two or a two, three or a one, three, one, but the principle is the same. So we started to think last year about how can we incorporate that spacing into our shooting? And so one of the simple things that we do is we might do a fatigue shooting drill where, you know, Luke, we might put you on the clock for three minutes and you're going to try to make as many twos and threes as you can and get those points in three minutes. Now, we used to have the rule that you just can't take the same shot twice in a row. So you have to constantly move one way or the other. And we don't want it to be around the world where it's just shoot it two steps to the right, two steps to the right, et cetera. So what we've done is we've said, Luke, when you shoot it, you need to relocate to form a triangle with the two rebounders who are feeding you the basketball. And so if you shoot and rebounder A all of a sudden runs to the right wing because you caught the right side of the rim, 
the triangle changes. And so now your spacing is determined by your perception and the same rule that we use in our zone offense. You're still getting a high volume of shots because we're using two balls. Um, but the, the rebounders have to rebound their ball. So it changes that spacing, right? And so that's a simple thing. It doesn't really affect our volume. We're still as efficient as we were before, but it does add a little bit of perception that translates directly into the things that we're seeing in how we're trying to play zone offense. It's really good. I, I appreciate those practical examples. I'm even just thinking through, you know, how I can steal that and, and use some of those same things with the the 10 year olds I coach, but then also the the freshmen as well. Cause like you said, I mean, if we want it to, if we want it to transfer, it's got to look a lot more like the game than, than we sometimes think uh, shifting to a different, different topic. Now, a lot of what you and JP talk about is culture and transformational leadership. So I would just love if you could talk about how you can do three things. How can you have high standards, hold players accountable, and foster positive relationships at the same time? And maybe what what shifts do coaches need to make to be able to do that? Well, there's a lot in that question. <laughs> let me uh, let me start with this analogy. Um, you know, JP and I have been doing the podcast, the Coaching Culture Podcast, together for a couple of years now, and our most listened to episode, I think is called uh, how to uh, something about how to create a competitive environment and make it feel like family or where a culture that feels like family where everything is earned or something of that, that nature. Right. Because again, that that's the tough part of it, right? Like you have players that you're in a family and everybody eats, you know, and you hear all, everybody's got a role and everybody has value, but at the same time, you want to establish whether it's standards of competition or effort level or, you know, whatever those things might be that are the pillars of your program. How do you balance acceptance and belonging with playing time is earned positions are earned. And so we often talk about kind of these simultaneous thresholds. And I, I like to describe it this way. If you think about eligibility, for example, not many people will argue that players should be academically eligible in order to compete for playing time, right? Like every school has got an, an eligibility process. Every school has a behavioral code of conduct. If Luke's out there smoking cigarettes and carjacking at, you know, on Thursday nights before the big game, like if you have criminal experience, your school is going to discipline you for that. And nobody really argues with that. And so in a sense, what they're doing is they're establishing a baseline for your eligibility to compete. So what we do is we just add another another layer to that. So there's academic eligibility, there's behavioral eligibility, and there's cultural eligibility. And so we build on the same idea. If you have to be academically eligible, behaviorally eligible, you also have to meet minimum standards in our program to be eligible to compete for varsity shirts or playing time or whatever it might be. And one of the analogies that I use when I was growing up as a kid, we always went on vacation in Minnesota and up by Brainerd, Minnesota, uh, is a little amusement park called Paul Bunyan Land. When you walk into uh, this amusement park, there's a big blue ox and a giant statue of Paul Bunyan that had a moving mouth. And they'd say, welcome to Paul Bunyan, Nate. You know, and and uh, these are the memories that scarred my childhood. But when you went into the amusement park, I remember it took me like three or four years before I could ride the roller coaster. 
because there was the picture of that little bear with his pointy finger and it said, if you're not this tall, you can't ride the roller coaster, right? I was able to get into the amusement park. We paid our admission, our $17 got us in, but there was another standard to be able to ride the roller coaster. And in a lot of ways, I think that's how we try to present that those sort of dueling purposes of you can be out for basketball and we love to have you and belong and we value you and there's things that you add to our program. But just because you're out doesn't mean you have the privilege to compete if you're not meeting our cultural standards. That's that's the bear with the finger, right? Once you've done that, once you've met those levels of effort or um, being a great teammate or whatever those values might be, now it comes down to performance on the court. The better players are going to play. The best group of five are going to be on the floor the most. And that's kind of how we try to explain it and build it out from there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important for your players to understand that, yeah, here's what the standard is in these different areas and what it looks like. One more question, and then I have a few rapid fire questions for you. You and JP talk about this a lot, and I think that it's it's just so, so, so important, but it just doesn't get enough, I think, thought and consideration from coaches. Will you talk about the importance of coaches examining and being aware of their own behaviors and how they can align those behaviors with their purpose assuming that they have a, a transformational purpose that they want to make a positive difference in kids' lives? Yeah, you know, that self-awareness piece is so critical, right? Like we can't really change and we can't really grow until we take a pretty critical look at where we are. Uh, and I think that applies to not just our behaviors, but our beliefs. You know, one of the places that we start with coaches is, just asking, how do you see your players? You know, this comes from the work at the Arbiter Institute and in their book, um, Leadership and Self-Deception. You know, and they talk about, not in an athletic context, but, you know, coaches, do you see your players as vehicles to your own success? Do I see what Luke can give to me? And maybe you see me as what coach can do for you. And that that's kind of a mutually beneficial transactional relationship, but, but you're still here to move our program forward, help us win games build my resume, you know, whatever it might be. There are other times where we see our players as obstacles. You know, we would have been better if, if Luke wasn't so selfish, if our seniors would have been better leaders, if we would have had better resources, if, 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 right. You know, when we start to think of ourselves as a victim of our circumstances, in a lot of ways, what that communicates to people around you is that, that your players are really an obstacle to your success. And people can feel that. You're never going to come out and say that, you know, Luke, the reason we didn't win is because of you, you know, but people can feel that when that, that's how you're seeing them. And really the ultimate challenge is to be able to see our players as people. You know, I just had a conversation uh, earlier today with a, a Division three college soccer coach, and she talked about wanting to see the person behind the player. And it's really the first time that she had really acknowledged how significantly beneficial that can be for the team and for that player, you know, because she'd always been caught up in the techniques and the strategies and the knowledge of the game. And so just her own awareness of that's the area that I neglected for so long. I didn't even know mattered. How do I grow in that? Right. And so just that 
that piece, you know, and how do you get that? I think one of my fears and JP would probably laugh at this, but I don't want to have a tooth growing out of my forehead and not be aware of it. And what I mean by that is like, is there something that, that he sees in me or that my wife sees in me or that my players see in me that I'm totally unaware, but everybody sees it and reacts to it, you know? And so I'm constantly trying to get perspective on my coaching, whether it's through exit interviews, whether it's through periodic one-on-ones, talking with assistant coaches, uh, getting feedback from, you know, people that I trust, bringing people in to watch practice, watching video, micing myself up, whatever it might be, trying to get uh, a more objective lens to figure out where I'm at and not just where I'm at, but then you start to think about, you know, how can I grow from there? When you ask your players, what is it like to be coached by me? You know, what does that experience feel like? That's an incredibly powerful question that I didn't start asking until about two years ago when I read Joe Herman's book, Inside Out Coaching. Uh, Asking your players in the middle of the season, how can I coach you better? Is there a way that I can communicate better with you? Because again, what I found was we were asking some of those questions at the end of the year, but by then it doesn't do me a lot of good. I got to wait till November to be able to apply that knowledge again. It would make more sense, dummy, to ask that question in December when there's still eight weeks left in the season when I can apply it. If a player says, you know, coach, you can be a little bit harder on me or, you know, coach, I really don't like it when you call me out in front of the team. Like I'm fine with what you want to say, but just can you do it on the side? You know, and for me, I just want to connect and communicate and help them to be better in the way that they're going to best receive that. And so we ask, and we're really intentional about trying to gain some of that perspective. That's really powerful. That self-awareness is so important. And then, like you said, just being willing to ask for feedback. That's huge. It's huge. It's, it's how we get better. It's how we expect our players to get better by receiving feedback. And so we've got to do the same. All right, here are my, my rapid fire questions for you. Here's the first one. Describe the best coach that you played for in three words. Caring, firm, and fun. Those are good words. Here's the next one. The most fun part of coaching is? Boy, for me, as I mentioned before, it's just the relationships with players. It's uh, when a player, you know, when I left my last job and I had – Not every player was trying to push me out the door, but I had a player send me a letter that said, I really appreciate how much you supported me in everything that I do, the other sports that I'm playing and how much I learned um, just about how to be a better person and a better leader from getting to play for you. And I'm really appreciative of that. Uh, I know that's a little more sentimental, but it's pretty fun when you get feedback like that. Yeah, that's special. Here's the next one. I wish I would have known blank before my first coaching experience. (laughs) Well, I didn't know anything before my first coaching experience. So um, we could talk for hours about the things that I wish I would have known. I think for me, it's probably, it's probably how to connect better with athletes and how to um, be able to, engage them in a way where there's enough psychological safety that they can tell you the truth. And I think that's rare. I think it takes a lot of work. I'm still not great at it. Um, But I can think of a lot of situations, you know, early in my career that probably would have gone better if players felt more comfortable just being honest with us as coaches and working with us to, you know, improve our situations. 
Yeah, that's a powerful example. The power dynamic between coach and player makes it really hard sometimes to build that safety that allows the honesty to come. Here's my last one. I know I'm successful as a coach when. Well, I think, like I said before, you know, when a player goes through your program or they've experienced your coaching in some way and they feel like they have become a better person, they become a better version of themselves. You know, one of the questions we started asking in our exit interviews, um, because kids in high school get, get asked all the time, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up and what do you want to study when you go to college? And we started asking them, who do you want to be? And nobody had ever asked them that question before. What kind of person do you want to be when you're in college or when you're in the workforce? And then, you know, we work backwards from there. How can we help them to move in that direction to become the person they want to become? And for me, that's, that's how I would measure success, you know, much more than wins and losses in state championships. It's the impact. And that, that I think speaks to that transformational mission all comes back to the idea that a player leaves your program better than when they started, not as a player, but as a person. That's what success is to me. That's fantastic. Well, coach, this has been awesome. Uh, before we hop off, uh, why don't you tell the listeners how they can connect with you and get access to any of the stuff that you and JP are doing at Thrive on Challenge? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Coach N. Sanderson. Uh, my email is the same, coachnsanderson at gmail.com. And uh, you can check out what we do at Thrive on Challenge. We have a, a professional mentorship program um, where we do one-on-one -on -one support for coaches, uh, as I mentioned before, in all sports at the high school and collegiate level. Um, you can find our podcast there. JP's got a number of articles and great resources there, and that's at thriveonchallenge.com. Awesome. Well, again, coach, thank you. This has been awesome. Super appreciate your time and uh, yeah, got a lot from this. So thanks again. I appreciate what you're doing for coaches, Luke. Keep up the good work. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode and thanks again to Nate for coming on to the podcast. Like I mentioned in the intro, you can hop on my email list and get the podcast notes in this episode and every episode of the podcast at coachesclubpod.com. And you can sign up for the next round of book clubs covering the Coach's Guide to Teaching at cgtbookclubs.com. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club Podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. 